Monday of game week, it's just different. It hits different. It feels different. It's uh, something that has been in my blood my whole life. So when you listen to Red Dirt music, it's like that last Rebel sound to me. It is a combination of uh, Southern rock and jazz and uh, bluegrass. And, the, the and for Skip Bayless to come out and say, I don't feel bad for him and kind of belittle him and say, how dare you? How dare you as the leader of America's team show weakness? Honestly, I want to say what I want to say. This is the Sam Mays Podcast. Welcome. I'm Sam Mays. And today we're talking to Ari Timken, host on the Dallas Cowboys Radio Network, 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, and host of Sirius XM Big 12 Radio Channel 375 and ESPNU Channel 84. Hey, Ari. How are you, sir? Doing really well, Sam. I appreciate you asking me to come on, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Uh, you and I have uh, worked together a few times here in the past. I've been on your show there on, on Sirius XM, and I enjoy what you do. I love the uh, the sound, the voice, and uh, obviously there's a ton to get into when you talk Dallas Cowboy football and obviously what's going on here in the Big 12, but uh, I'd like to take a little time in the beginning of these to kind of get to know my guest and uh, you know, it's 2020 has been a lot for everyone, especially people in our industry. And I'm just curious, uh, how has 2020 kept you and your family? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been crazy. You know, everybody has their own sort of brand of crazy throughout this period of time, you know? And I think, you know, at first when the you know lockdown happened really, and everybody was quarantined, you know, I have two kids under five, my, you know, my, my oldest son is going to be five this month. And then I, my younger son is going to be two later this month. So it was like me and my wife and there's just not enough alcohol in the world to, <laughs> right. to be with two kids under five for that, you know, locked in like that. And so, I mean, it was, uh, it was rough. And, but, and so it's like, man, I, I was thinking about it like, man, I couldn't think of a worse situation to be in. But then I start talking to some of my friends, you know, some that are single, some that are married and, you know, it just, it doesn't matter what your situation is. Like there's just, there's positives and negatives of it in that context. And so that was kind of one of the things I realized, like, Hey, I'll look back on this in that period of time and be like, wow, that was amazing. Especially like when my kids get older and start hating me, like that'll be, a, <laughs> I'll, I'll look back and be like, that was awesome. Cause that was when they loved me and that was cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was brutal there, you know, just really trying to work you know, trying to get things done, but also trying to, you know, make sure that your kids weren't in front of the television nonstop, uh, which was the, you know, that was the, the ultimate piece. So it's like now, you know, it, it's kind of funny how numbers are starting to perk back up again. And yet I feel like everybody's just like, yeah, I'm over it. You know, it's like you go right. out, especially in Dallas, it's like people are, you know, it's almost as if there is no pandemic. And I, I mean, I get it, but you know, there's pressures that are difficult where you have pressures from friends and family to, hang out and go places and do things. I have a sister in Houston that's like trying to come up to, to, to Dallas. And, it's, you know, so it's this dynamic of, you know, trying not to upset people. But then also, like, my whole thing is I just got to protect so that my kids can stay at school. Like, that's it. I cannot get back to having these kids locked in my house again. I right. need them to be at school. So, I, you know, that's my, you know, my approach here is just trying to avoid it at all costs. And it's, it's difficult you know, to manage with friends and family now because there's certain expectations and, you know, and, and so it, it, it's difficult, man. How, how about you? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, the, 
my kids are itty bitty. So you, you would think that they would be uh, pretty, pretty oblivious to all these things in relation to their development, you know, over the next uh, several years. But I do really feel bad for those people who have teenage age kids, right? Kids that are in high school or middle school. And I mean, their whole lives have been flipped upside down here in Oklahoma. We're doing uh, kind of a split schedule. So half the school goes on a Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday's a cleaning day, and then it's a Thursday and Friday. Uh, and it's a disaster. Now, I know exactly how you feel. And I think it's been um, pretty crazy to watch social media unfold and, and look at people who are saying, well, it's not that bad. And, and you know, what are you complaining about? And maybe we should just cancel school for the year. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, man, y'all, y'all don't get it. Clearly, you don't have any any kids, not only because of our sanity as parents, but for their development overall, like school's important, right. you know, it's very important. And, uh, you know, the conversations in, in this house about, you know, the, the uh, learning at home and the, uh, you know, the online school and none of these schools know exactly what they're doing. And there's so much work for kids. And I mean, it's been a disaster, right? And we're just trying to find a way to get uh, get through it for sure. And I, I'm with you here in Oklahoma, the pandemic, <laughs> we've experienced it a little bit different. You know, I, I go to a casino every Monday and sit and do my show. And I'm sitting here going, look at, I mean, there's, you know, casino goers are older, uh, (laughs) some blue hairs in the room. And I'm thinking there's hundreds of you in here. And I'm sitting here with this mask on trying to do this show in this public place. And I'm like, you're all the ones that are really at risk. And it just seems like no one cares. I think everybody's had had enough of this deal. That's wild, right? Like you're 80 years old and you're sitting there at a slot machine, touching it right after the person who just did, you know, like it just doesn't make any, uh, any sense to me at all. I feel like there are people that are that age, Sam, that like, they just, it's just a high level of BGAF, you know, like maybe I'm at a higher risk. Maybe I could die from this, but I don't care. I'm going to continue to live my life because you're right. Like I, I certainly know elderly people that are, you know, taking it seriously, but I tell you, you go out and in public and you just see a lot of, you know, a lot of elderly people, not only that, but they're not wearing masks. Like they just, they don't care. And I mean, it it is, I, I think when this, when this is done, you know, and who knows? It could be 2022 and we're still wearing masks. But we're going to have a dramatic sort of discrepancy in the age of the population. Like, th- this seems to be one of those things that over the course of a long period of time, over, you know, it's been, I think, 250,000 deaths in America. Right. Um, you know, that, that we're going to see, like, just the, the skew, how much it's tipped the scales in terms of the youth in America versus the elderly in America. Like, it's going to be pretty drastic, I would think, over time the amount of people that are, that are going to succumb to this. But yeah, man, it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, we'll always look back on this year and these couple of years, as long as, you know, this weird period exists, and, you know, just always have kind of clear memories, but also I would imagine a skewed different memory in terms of like how, you know, being locked in the house and maybe how positive that could be. And then the other things too, it's just like, it, it, it's just crazy how much it changes the way you look at the world, the way you look at your neighborhood life. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I started hanging out with friends on, on my lawn and on our friend's lawn. Absolutely. And like that just became such a really cool, like number one, you don't have to host anymore at your house. And so like, you don't have to worry about cleaning. You don't have to worry about people being in your house. Like, you know, now it's like, just come to the front lawn, bring your chairs, bring your beer and let's yep. go, you know? And so it's, it's, but getting to know my neighbors in a way that I never would have, um, you know, without it and sort of, you know, creating relationships with them in a way. And, and it almost, there's almost like a closer, you're almost closer to them because you're going through it with them. 
one of those things where it's like when you face adversity with people, you become closer to them based on the adversity that you're facing as opposed to, you know, just happen, you know, happen to know somebody and they live down the street and I know nothing about them, but I, you know, I just know that they live down the street from me. Yeah, the, the community conversation is interesting here, right? I'm sitting here, the television's on in the podcast room, and uh, election coverage is up, and it, it's been amazing to see uh, how much we've all been separated by this. But what you're describing is happening all over the country, and the reality is in 1950, right. it happened every weekend, right? Right. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, you're looking out in the cul-de-sac, and there's your dad, and he's drunk with Steve and Ed and Earl, and they're out there talking about you know, U.S. issues, and they're talking about, uh, you know, just the, the news in general. We were just way more informed, bottom line, right? And I, I think when you talk about the fellowship you're having in your front yard and the conversations that you're having, I'm sure it's about sports and, and uh, family and, and news and everything else, but those are good things that have come out of COVID. Like, I'm with you. I wouldn't know my neighbors either. I had a great conversation with mine uh, yesterday, just out in the front yard looking at the damage from the ice storm. You know, I'm, I'm busy. I know you are too. And uh, when you get home, it's kind of like I'm in my safe place where no one knows me and I can sit here and just do my thing. And, and uh, now right. it's, you know, I come home and, and Steve's out in the yard. And he's like, hey, Sam, and Scott's out in his yard. And it's just kind of a cool uh, vibe for sure. I- I'm right there with you. I want well, to, I Sam, got, you bring up a, go ahead. Sorry. No, real quick. And you bring up an interesting point about, you know, social media has connected us in so many ways, but it's also disconnected us in so many ways. And I know it's kind of cliche to talk about, but, you know, you can't really tell tone and, you know, yes. perspective and perception through text. And that's what I just, I hate about the conversation on social media because it's so skewed and it's so hard to gauge because of tone and lack thereof. And it's like, it's one of those things where we used to live in communities, like you mentioned, that like we used to engage with, with our neighbors and we used to have conversations and understand their perspective that was different from ours and, mm-hmm. you know, be more open-minded to perspectives. And now it's just like social media has just taken that away. And so we seem so much more polarizing than we actually are. Whereas like if you had a conversation with somebody in person, as opposed to on Twitter, like it would be a lot more cordial because of the way in which we engage with one another in person where we're probably more willing to hear their perspectives. And it's just Twitter and, and social media just completely removes that and sort of creates this environment of polarization that's not exactly there. And, and you know, you're right. It, it's like it, it just harkens back to the days where it's like I go outside and talk to my neighbor. I respect him. I respect what he does. I respect who he is. And so therefore, I'm willing to listen to who, you know, listen to him and his perspective, even if it's different from mine. Absolutely. And maybe therefore he's changing my point of view on a certain thing. Whereas, like on social media, it's just it's a fool's errand. Yeah, I am um, here recently just because of the podcast. My uh, my girlfriend is a marketing genius, like an exceptional human being, very very smart, and she's been teaching me about algorithms on on social media and how information is presented to you and how news is presented to you and you know, how it's exactly what you're looking to see and how, you know, if yeah. you don't want to uh, disagree, you don't have to disagree, right? Because this is what's being presented to you. It's all things that are something that you are focused on or something that you Googled. And, and I'm kind of blown away by that. And it's really kind of uh, disheartening, right? Do you want to be able to get on? If you're looking for me, I go on social media to see what's going on. I'll be watching my Twitter all day today uh, during this election day to see what's happening in this country. And I would love to know that I was getting both sides of the conversation Unfortunately, we're just not, and that is a real problem. Like, if you look at the the issues here in the U.S., I mean, I, I would say social media is on the top of the list, and I, I don't necessarily know how we come back from it. You almost wish you could just get rid of it because it's doing more damage than positives for sure. Like, you and I use it every day before work, and it's fun, and it pictures and videos, and, you know, it's helping us build our brands and things like that, but what it's used for around the world seems to be more negative than anything. 
No, totally. I mean, it, it's, I actually recently watched the movie The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which is all about that. You know, it's from like the people who are huge, you know, big up at, at Facebook and Google to kind of describe exactly what you're just talking about, where it's, you know, it feeds the beast. It continues to give you things that are going to reinforce your beliefs and will not show you things that will challenge them. And I, like, I don't know about you, Sam, but that's something that I've just, I really want that to be my life. I want to have my beliefs challenged because Absolutely. I want to think, I want to, I want to learn things that I don't know. I want to get perspectives that I don't know because that's how you grow become better and more intellectually, you know, sound. So yeah, I mean, Facebook, social media is the exact opposite of that. And I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any going away from it. You know, I, I guess I just wonder, you know, is there a way to sort of not disregard it, but diminish the importance of it? That, that's what I think is, is, is more important. And then that just comes down to like, have more face-to-face conversations with people, go out and meet people in your neighborhood. Don't be arguing with, with people on Twitter who are halfway around the world and may not even really actually believe what they're saying, but are just trying to get a rise out of you or, you know, putting information out there that isn't true or they don't even believe it, but they're doing it because they're feeding the beast. So yeah, man, it's, uh, I would say the only way to do it is just like meet people in your neighborhood, have conversations with people, understand that the world doesn't exist entirely just on, on social media and, and in a digital space. That's the most important thing I would think. All right, let's switch gears and talk to a, uh, Talk about a more positive subject, the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, Ari works down there, one hundred five three, the fan in uh, in Dallas, uh, one of my favorite stations. When I hit on the get on the road, you guys are exceptional. What you do, and I can't imagine what it's like working there and going through this season as a media member. You come in, your roster looks the part. Dak Prescott just bet on himself. What an incredible story that is. Uh, you know, you return an offensive line that you feel like is going to be up to the challenge, one of the best backs in the league. You luck into getting CeeDee Lamb in the draft. Like, holy crap, is are the Dallas Cowboys going to be back as a Super Bowl contender this year? And it just seemed like from game one on, it was a, just a consistematic meltdown. What a disaster this season is. Yeah, I'd say you pretty much characterized it, you know, pretty well there, Sam. I mean, it, it's I picked them to win 13 games this year. I mean, I was pretty optimistic about them. And, you know, I'm usually, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in Dallas. I grew up in Chicago. So it's not like the Cowboys are my, you know, I'm a, I'm a true Cowboys homer. You know, I've, I've come to like them over the years and covering them and getting to know a lot of these guys. But, you know, I, I, I looked at this team objectively and thought, hey, this is, a, this is a elite level offense. And that's what it takes to win in the NFL this year. And I, I thought they finally had a coach that could kind of leverage the skill set of, these offensive weapons and could evolve and change and adapt way more quickly than the predecessor. And I mean, it's, it's, it's Murphy's law for them this year, whatever, whatever could go wrong will go wrong. And I mean, it, it, it's injuries, you know, Sam, I think one of the more underrated parts of football is not just who you play, but when you play them, when you play certain teams, like the Cowboys just, it, it has just completely lined up for them to be playing like the worst possible team, the worst possible week, where it's like, all right, you don't, you ha- you have Zach Martin out a week, now go up against a team with a really good pass rush, really good defensive line to Washington. Like that was, you know, Washington's only strength is their defensive line. So to go up with basically, you know, four players, four of your five that were not your starters when the season started in that game, including Zach Martin, who missed the one game with a concussion, like that just is so symptomatic of their season. It's not just the injuries. It, it's, not just their defense, it's not just the turnovers, it's also the fact that they keep getting like these really bad matchups 
the weeks that they get them. Because, again, it's, it's not necessarily who you play, but when you play these teams and, and how are their injury situations? Who do they have out? Where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? So the Cowboys all year have been a team. Obviously, injuries are huge. I mean, if they don't have the injury to Dak Prescott, I think it's a different reality for them, obviously. And we're, we're, for a lot of fans who maybe didn't like Dak or didn't know how good he was, I think we're seeing firsthand just how good he was and how much he made up for, you know, a lot of other things that maybe weren't there. But, they, I mean, they – their defense is obviously bad, but I think their defense is is sort of the patsy here where, I mean, they just turn the football over too much. You know, I mean, they're, they're kind of like the Oklahoma State Cowboys in that regard where it's just like every game they're, they're minus in the turnover differential. Every Absolutely. game it's so hard, so hard to win games. I think if you win in the NFL, you win the turnover battle, you win 75% of the time. So, I mean, that just gives you a pretty good idea of just how important that turnover margin is. Like, the Cowboys' scoring defense has been bad, but it's been certainly aided by how bad they've been in, in, in turning over the football. Right. I mean, they're always on the field, right? And, and the one thing I like about that defense right. a year ago was, they, I mean, they sideline to sideline, and they are opportunistic, and they'll go. That front seven is as good as you're going to get when they're all healthy and getting up the field and being aggressive, but you got to have energy to do those things. And I think you even saw for the first time this week, you mentioned Oklahoma State, that defense got a little tired in the second half of that game because they, I mean, they played nobody to start their season. So yeah, no, that all that makes sense for sure. And, and I guess the biggest question now is where do they go from here? Uh, expectations extremely high. You mentioned it's a disaster. Now the trade deadline is at what? Three, three o'clock our time here in, in Oklahoma and Texas. Are they sellers? Or are they trying to get rid of a bunch of people? Like, it just seems like they need to rebuild their entire offensive line. I mean, what's the point of having Zeke Elliott back there? If you can't block anybody, that's not a back that makes an offensive line better. He's a great back right. behind a good offensive line, but he's not hes not Darren Sproles, you know, who's going to make a piss-poor offensive line look significantly better just due to his agility. That guy needs some help, totally. and he just doesn't have it. No, I, I think you're right. You know, I, I'm I'm curious. My, my gut says they're not going to be very active at all in terms of being buyers or sellers. I would say they're probably more sellers than buyers, but they're opportunistic. You know, they're, they're still looking to build this thing long-term, and they don't think – I think they think this is more of an anomaly than anything. And so, you know, they, they would, if they, you know, if the right situation presented itself with, you know, an offensive lineman that they can build on in the future, I think they would do it. But, you know, I, I would certainly, if I were them, unload whoever I could. You know, Alden Smith is a guy that has been, has been linked to have interest. You know, my, the sourcing that I got says the Cowboys haven't received an offer for Alden Smith. Doesn't mean they've gotten, they haven't gotten calls. But, you know, those, those, that's, these situations evolve. You get a call, you talk. You know, and, and, and then maybe a, a formal offer presents itself. But what I've heard is the Cowboys have not received any formal offers for Alden Smith. I would trade him. I mean, right. He, he, I'm with you. He's, he played really well to start the season. He has not played very well the last few weeks. And so I would, I mean, I'd be looking to trade him to get something of value for him if I possibly could because of how well he started the season. And he's a different player than he was, you know, when he was, you know, on track to break the sack record all time because he was just like sacking everybody. Um, but I, I mean, the Cowboys insist they don't want to trade him. I don't really get that at all, especially if he's already played his best football of the season. Why not trade him at, at, at the high point? And I mean, look, I think, you know, they, they ideally maybe like to trade if they could trade either a Zeke or an Amari Cooper based on what they could potentially get. But I, I think their contracts, both of them at this point are too cost prohibitive. It would be a lot of dead money for them. And then a team wanting to take out a pretty significant salary for both Zeke and, and Cooper. So I, 
you know, aside from that, I don't know that I see any other players that I'd be willing to part with, you know, just depending on what they could get for them. But um, look, the, the big thing here, Sam, is the Cowboys, I mean, it's going to be difficult for them to win another game this year. Now, maybe they will. I mean, they still get the Giants again. They still get the Washington football team. And if, if Zach Martin stays healthy, we see that this offense line's significantly better than without him, obviously. But, you know, if they don't win another game this year, 2-14, and 14, I mean, they're going to be staring a top-five pick right in the face, perhaps a top-three pick. And now you're looking at, hey, are you going to be in the picture for a Trevor Lawrence? Are you going to be in the picture for a Justin Fields? And then what do you do with your quarterback situation? Because Dak Prescott is an elite-level quarterback. He is, you know, I think it, 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 last year you could say he was de- – two years ago you could say he was definitely top-15. Last year I think you could say he's definitely top-10. And we're not really sure this year, but he was trending up top-five. Who knows? But he was he – was, playing at a very high level before he went down with the injury so you have that but you also he's due for a big time payday and so versus a a rookie quarterback who could be elite with those those one of those two or even perhaps a Trey Lance or Zach Wilson out of BYU where you're staring five years of cheap quarterback play in the face so that is to me the most interesting dynamic here is that the quarterback if the Cowboys do end up at the top five pick and put themselves in position to get one of these elite level quarterbacks you know they pull the trigger on the quarterback do they trade down? Do they go another position? I'm of the belief that you just can't pass up. You get you get a position you get a position to draft Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. You cannot pass up that opportunity. It seemed to me like the Cowboys fired a vanilla wafer in Jason Garrett and then hired a saltine in Mike McCarthy. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm. I cannot wrap my head around. That's a great way to put it. I mean, why? Why? Like this roster is so young and dynamic, and the and their background coming out of the college football programs that they played for gives you this ability to just run a hybrid. And if you look at you know coaches around the country, it's it's Kansas City, it's Baltimore, it's it's L.A., it's San Francisco. There's so much creativity in the NFL, and you could really start to see it taking that next step into what the future of this league looks like. And it's like Jerry Jones is like, oh, no, we're going to stay here in the past. Let me go ahead and bring Mike, you know, McCarthy in and dust his old ass off, and let's see what he can do offensively, and it's just nothing. And I'm at a – I just don't understand it. And it just – you know, the pandemic is going to help him keep his job. You feel like the loss of his quarterback is going to help him keep his job. But at the end of the day, if it was all perfect right now and Dak was healthy and things were going the way, I still don't know that he's the coach for the future of the Dallas Cowboys. So, look, I, I think you know, I think this is what you were saying with your, your, um, with your metaphor. Jay, clearly, Mike McCarthy is an upgrade from Jason Garrett. Yes. But how much? And, and where is he really relative to the rest of the league? I think, yeah, I mean, he, he was definitely an upgrade over Garrett, but you're right. Like, there, there's a lot of young, smart, offensive-minded head coaches that they could have gone after um, that they didn't. They, they wanted a head coach. They wanted a coach, head coaching experience. You know, they, they, they didn't want a guy that they thought had to learn on the job, which Jason Garrett probably skewed that from them because they viewed Jason as having to do that. Well, I mean, maybe Jason just wasn't a good coach. and You just thought he was learning on the job over time, but he was just never really a good coach and kind of a pushover. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You know, I, I don't know how good of a coach Mike McCarthy really is. He does, you know, he has this like aura of confidence and arrogance. That it, it's kind of like, you haven't really done anything here, man. Like, you know, I know you've won a Super Bowl in Green Bay, but you really haven't done anything here. So to kind of act like that to the media, it's a little disconcerting. and It doesn't put you in the best light. Now, look, he's got way more personality and he's way more open than Jason Garrett was, especially outwardly and to the media publicly. 
Jason behind closed doors was a lot, you know, a lot more open and, and had much more of a personality than he showed kind of at the podium. But look, I, I do, I do think their offense was really good. I mean, it was one of the top offenses in football and, you know, look, you could certainly second guess them in play calling early in the, early in the season, but they're averaging, they were averaging 35, 30 points a game, something, right. somewhere around there. It's like, I don't really care how you get there. You get to 30 points a game, doing you're a good doing job. something. And, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll never know what that would have looked like over the course of a 16 game season because you miss, you lose Dak Prescott and you're taking such a significant step back, especially, you know, given the offensive line situation too. But yeah, I mean, he'll definitely get next year. I don't think Mike Nolan will be back next year because that's coordinator. I think that's really where they messed up. You know, they, they wanted to do this hybrid defense, which I get. And you're right. Teams are so matchup oriented now. You know, I look at Frank Wright in Indianapolis, like he's so matchup oriented. You can't really say schematically what he is game to game. He just looks at, you know, looks at the team he's going up against and he puts in an offensive game plan and he gears it towards them. And I, so I think you're 100% correct in like the best teams in the NFL, the smartest teams in the NFL are, ma- are they're not scheme oriented, they're matchup oriented. And defensively, that's what they wanted to do. But I mean, you spent the last 10 years running a 4 3. So it, now you want to, now all of a sudden you want to, in a shortened off season with no OTAs, no mini camps, you want to go hybrid three four four three with four three personnel that you've run for the last decade, right? Like that was just a disaster, and that's not, a, not that's not entirely Mike Nolan's fault. McCarthy's the one that hired Nolan and signed off on that. So I, I do think he'll be Nolan will be the one to take the fall for it. I also think you know they they could end up firing Jim Tom Sula as well, their defensive line coach. I think if you look at one area on their defense that's underperformed relative to expectations, it has to be their defensive line. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if those two got fired after the season's over and then they look to replace them. But look, I, I don't, they're not going to give Mike McCarthy a decade like they gave Jason Garrett to figure it out. And, you know, I, I certainly think I mean, he's going to get obviously more than this year, but I don't know if he gets more than next year, to be honest with you. I am the, the nose guard position in the three, four defense to me is so intriguing in, in 2020. My father was an all American nose guard at West Point in 79 and uh, I would say in 1979, you probably had, oh, 50 or 60 true NFL caliber, uh, you know, high school kids coming into the college ranks. I think in 2020, you probably have four or five mm. of true th- three, four nose guards. I'm talking Casey Hampton, right? I'm talking uh, Kelly Gregg. I'm talking guys that aren't about making sacks, but just playing the position Thank the way you. that it should be played, Right. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's just unless you have one of those guys, I don't see the point uh, in a three man front as a as an all American guard. I'm just telling you, I would I would laugh it off. You're gonna run a three man front, cool. We're running a pro set offense. Unless you've got some dude that's eating dimes and shitting out nails in the middle, we're gonna just run for 400 <laughs> yards. Like that's just the reality of it. And in these guys now, there's great athletes, right? Great athletes in the NFL, no question. But the mindset Ari, is the difference, like. Are you here for yourself or are you here for the team? If you're playing nose guard, you're here for the team, then you're probably doing a good job. If you're playing nose guard and you're there for yourself and you're worried about your numbers and you're worried about getting recognition, bro, you're in the wrong position and the wrong defense. And I feel like there's just a ton, you know, there's not a ton of Cam Haywards around the NFL these days. No. And so I'm watching these three, four defenses like you're suffering because you just don't have that, that anchor in the middle, that guy that's willing to drop down to a knee get flat back just so he can grab onto both guards and pull him with him, right? That's what you need. And I just don't know that, I mean, does Dallas have that guy in that roster? How many guys in the NFL, how many teams in the NFL have that guy in the roster? 
No, and I mean, coming off, you know, they, they hired Monty Kiffin to be their defensive coordinator after they fired Rob Ryan. And that was when they went to that, you know, that, that Tampa 2-4-3 defense. And then, you know, Monty Kiffin went away, and then Rob Marinelli came in. Same defense, same guys, just a younger <laughs> younger coach. Right. They went younger, Monty Kiffin and Rob Marinelli. But, I mean, so for years, they completely went away from exactly what you're talking about. They didn't want those guys. They were not interested in those guys. True nose tackles because that wasn't the type of, of players they wanted in the interior of their defensive line. They wanted guys that can get up fields that, you know, would, would maybe be smaller and more athletic. And then, so to then shift back into this, and then they make their move for their interior of their defensive line, you know, bring in Neville Gallimore through the draft, which fine, okay, but he's going to grow into that a little bit. And he's definitely more of your athlete in the middle than he is, you know, your true, your nose, true nose. Right. And, and, then, and then they signed Don Terry Poe, who, if they've watched film in the last couple of years, has not been anything. And then they say he was out of shape. But wait a second. I thought you wanted that big bull, you know, right. that you wanted a true nose that would eat, be a space eater. So you're telling me he was too fat? You want him to lose 60 pounds? <laughs> well, I don't understand what you want. So, yeah, I mean, their, their defensive front has been in that. And then, of course, there's the idea of, you know, Demarcus Lawrence, who's made a career out of putting his hand in the ground. Now he's rushing, you know, now he's both rushing with his hand in the ground and you know, standing up. And then, but you have Alden Smith because Alden Smith did so well rushing standing up. So it's like, it was just, it was just such a mess from the start of like, they had no idea what they wanted to do defensively. And so they said they're going to be more matchup oriented, which is like, okay, good luck doing that with the personnel that they have. And, and you're not going to, you're not going to change that in one off season by signing Don Terry Poe and Alden Smith. And then, you know, and, and then even worse, like, I, I was saying uh, on the postgame show one, one time, it's like, you know, sometimes their defense confuses the opposition. Most of the time it confuses themselves, but sometimes they're confusing the quarterback. <laughs> That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I, I think that, uh, you know, as far as Dallas is concerned, the conversation will always be about Jerry Jones and his expectations. This is one of the most visible owners in all professional sports. I mean, around the world. Uh, we'll end the Dallas Cowboy talk with this. Is Is Jerry... Is Jerry, man, how can I ask you this? <laughs> is Jerry still a, an, what you would call an asset as far as just managing the team, uh, doing the stuff, you know, as far as the face of the, of, the, uh, of the franchise, he's doing radio with you guys. I mean, he's active, and you love the show that he puts on. You love that he's the leader of America's team. But, you know, at, at what point do we think the job has maybe passed you and it's time to let your son, you know, do, do some of the work? So... I would say, for the most part, that is happening. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, I mean, look, Jerry and Steven will say this, but Jerry, you know, I have the last word and, you know, but and that, that there's truth in that. But, I mean, a lot of times they're making decisions even independent of that. And, and they're basically like preparing Jerry to say yes to a situation they presented him to say yes. It's like, Jerry, say yes to this. Okay, I'll say yes because he says that to be information. That says I should say yes. So, I mean, his role in terms of making decisions has been greatly diminished. Even going back to like you know, a couple of years ago, they're in, you know, contentious contract negotiations down the wire at the Marcus Lawrence, and they're like in meetings, and Jerry's not even in those meetings. Like that's, that's where it's at, you know? So Jerry, again, will say he's got, he's, he's got the last word, and certainly he does, but I think that Will McClay and Stephen Jones and the collection of, of coaches like they all have very important input in the decision making, 
And so they will present a situation to Jerry where it's like, okay, he's going to say yes to this because of the way that they presented it. Um, and look, I mean, sometimes that's killed him too. You know, the, the famous story with this is Rob Marinelli really, really wanted, you know, a, more of a Taco Charlton as opposed to a TJ Watt, you know, right. for some of the same reasons we've been talking about. So they passed up TJ Watt to draft Taco Charlton. We all know how that went. And that's one that, you know, is like Rob Marinelli, a defensive coordinator, you know, is the one that was influential in making that decision. So, you know, look, I, Jerry is an asset from a standpoint of, you know, he's one of the most thick-skinned people that I've ever seen. Has to I mean, be, yeah. It's incredible how he allows those that even he employs to a certain degree to criticize him outwardly, publicly, and be okay with it. Not just be okay with it, but be willing to engage in discussions with that person as to why they might be wrong or why they might be right. I mean, he's, he's a really phenomenal human being in that regard and very unique. You just don't find that in sports. I mean, Dan Snyder, you say something negative about Dan Snyder or the Washington football team, and you're fired. You know, I mean, like that. So Jerry, Jerry's an asset in that regard where I don't know that that will continue beyond Jerry because who knows how thick-skinned the rest of his, you know, his, the rest of his family is. I, I would say Steven is. I'm not sure about Jerry Jr. or the rest. But, I mean, look, I, I think the issue with the Cowboys this year is pretty clear to me. You know, you lose four of your five starting offensive linemen and you lose your quarterback, you're going to have problems, especially when your defense wasn't supposed to be good. I mean, I said before the season started, if their defense was average, they could win a Super Bowl. Average. People were like, their defense will be average. Are you kidding me? It's like, no. Have you seen their secondary? Their secondary was bad last year and they lost their best player in Byron Jones. They didn't even try to sign him. So I, I, I think, like, the big issue with this team this year is not something that is necessarily Jerry's fault. The defense is, and I'll, I put a lot of that on Steven and Jerry and Will McClay and the scouting department, but, again, they weren't, they weren't going to be good on defense, so it's not a huge surprise they're not good on defense. So it's like the biggest problem that they have is, why don't they have better backup offensive linemen? Which, as you know, like, that's, you're not going to have that. I mean, Connor right. Williams is probably an average offensive lineman, Connor Williams, and he's by far their worst offensive lineman when they have their best five out there. So. You know, I, I, I'd say that's their biggest issue is they, they, they weren't prepared, as most teams probably wouldn't be, to lose, you know, basically their entire offensive line and their starting quarterback. But I will say so much of the way that this organization is built is built through Bill Parcells. And what I mean by that is, you know, they hired Parcells, and Steven, you know, that was where he learned how to build the organization. I mean, Bill Parcells built the organization when he was there, but so much of the way that they're still built, through the draft, not spending money in free agency, like that's, that's Parcells teaching Steven how to run an organization. And I think that's their biggest flaw right now is inactivity in free agency. They, they don't, they, they're too blind to their holes, especially in their secondary. They've just done not enough to try to improve their secondary in any capacity whatsoever. All right, buddy, let's switch gears and we'll end with a little Big 12 talk as you do host a Big 12 football uh, show on Sirius XM. And this is where I've been uh, a guest a couple of times and, uh, how crazy is it that, and I'm going to say this even though Oklahoma State lost this last weekend to Texas, but the two best teams in this league are here in Oklahoma, right? The Oklahoma Sooners have improved drastically in the last three or four weeks, and obviously Oklahoma State, I mean, you watched the game on Saturday. They would have beat Texas eight out of ten times. I mean, they beat their asses last weekend, just turned the ball over five times. The league is, I, I don't want to say that it's healthy, but it just seems like the brand of football that's being played across the board Looks like it's going to be more conducive to bringing in some better athletes from top to bottom in this conference. And I think the 2020 COVID season may be uh, a, a positive for the Big 12 as a whole moving forward. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, so, I mean, I think the biggest 
disappointment in that is that they didn't really get an opportunity to show in a full non-conference schedule just how good that this style, this new brand of Big 12 football could be against some of the other conferences. I mean, the Big 12 is, is playing good defensive football with good running games. You know, I mean, you think about Absolutely. Oklahoma State was expected to have the best running game in the Big 12 this year with, with Chuba returning and then the emergence of L.D. Brown and, like, they may have the third best running game in the Big 12 right now or perhaps with the way Oklahoma's running game is starting to trend up. Like, who knows? I mean, Iowa State's running game is incredible. West Virginia's running game is incredible. Texas should have a good running game. It doesn't. Oklahoma State's running game is really, really good. Oklahoma's running back running game is starting to emerge. And then defenses. West Virginia's defense is loaded. Oklahoma State's defense is loaded. Um, Texas is good up front, I think, on defense. Oklahoma's getting significantly better week to week on defense. Iowa State, really smart defensive mind, smart defense. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely not the, you know, early 2000s, 76 to 65 score Big 12. It's like the SEC and the Big 12 have completely shifted. The SEC now is huge offenses, explosive offenses, and not much defense. So I think you're right. I do think this will have a dramatic impact in recruiting because it did the other way. It did the other way with the SEC playing great defense, not, not exactly great offense, and they continue to get great defensive pieces. But now we're going to start to see, I think, that shift a bit in terms of the athletes around the country seeing the defensive brand of football that we're seeing the Big 12. But it's just amazing to me, too, Sam, that's like the narrative hasn't really shifted, despite the fact that the SEC and the Big 12 have basically changed places. And I'm not saying that the Big 12 is better than the SEC, but they've changed places, schematically speaking, and yet it's like now what the SEC does is the best. Whereas before it was like the Big 12 isn't playing real football, and the SEC was, and now they've shifted, right. they've switched places, <laughs> and now the SEC's playing right football, and the Big 12's not. It's like, just say that the SEC's the best, and that whatever they're doing is the best, because that seems to be the case. Yeah, I think that the, I mean, it, you're talking draft picks, right? I mean, that's the thing that really kind of uh, makes the SEC what it is. The amount of the elite NFL talent that's coming out of those states in that conference is what separates them from everyone else. I, I'd actually would argue with you that the Big 12 was the SEC before the SEC. You consider the games, the teams that I played against in the early, sure. early 2000s. I mean, it was Oklahoma State with a top 10 offensive line. Oklahoma had a top 10 offensive line. Texas had a top 10 offensive line. Colorado had two 250-pound, 40-pound running backs and a top 15 offensive line. Nebraska was road-grading people. Kansas State was playing elite 10, 11-game football. I mean, it was an incredibly physical conference. And then Mike Leach happened, right? I blame Leach for the whole damn thing. I'm dead serious. Because he started <laughs> yeah. he started winning games that he shouldn't win, right? I've got two ESPN uh, instant classics underneath my belt that involved – uh, Texas Tech, and I will never forget the weeks of preparation for those games. You got a scout team over there looking at you like you're fucking crazy because they've got to run 150 plays in a in a in a, a basically a scrimmage on a Wednesday because of how fast that Tech went. Right, so then it's oh we're gonna beat they beat Oklahoma, they beat Texas, and then when Bob Stoops and Mac Brown decided to switch gears and go a little bit towards that direction, that's when the whole league fell apart. When you add Leach and then Gundy did it, Stoops did it, Brown did it, and it just it's I'm so happy to be here in twenty twenty and think, oh, we're finally coming out of this disaster because it's really what stopped elite defenses from being born here in this league. Players aren't coming here. Why would you? The ball's gone in three seconds from the quarterback. You can't get to the passer. No one's running the football successfully. So yeah, no, I, I I'm right there with you as far as um the the transition because you're right, it's coming back to this a little bit. Now the SEC's doing it 
with through the air, but they're doing it with a bunch of NFL talent still. So until those guys, until those guys decide, well, we're going to look towards the Longhorns again, or we're look look towards the Sooners, we're going to look towards somewhere else in the Big Twelve country. You know, country. I think that conversation is going to stay the same. But yeah, I mean, I'm 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 one of the few people. Like when you said what you said, I was like, man, somebody that agrees with me. The conference is getting better. It is. Like you're not going to hear that this year because the Herb Streets of the world are going to be, you know, ripping the Big Twelve. We're not having a representative in the. Uh, in the championship game or in the in the final four but man the big 12 is starting to stabilize a little bit and i can't imagine that it's not going to go anywhere but up from here i mean especially when you consider the the list of coaches in this league now i mean there's a bunch of talented guys no question in fact i remember last year looking at the you know coaching roster across the conference thinking it's pretty incredible how you know how smart and multifaceted and you know and dynamic some of these coaches are and and to go back to your point real quickly. I mean, you mentioned Casey Hampton, right? Like, yes. You start talking about the NFL players, and to, to reinforce your point, that came out of those offensive lines and defensive lines to sort of reiterate how physical it was. You're right. I mean, Casey Hampton is the first guy you mentioned, right? I mean, this is a guy that was just dominating in the middle of a Texas defense. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're 100% correct. Like, there was a point in time where the NFL was flush with Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Nebraska, Texas, offensive linemen and defensive linemen. And, and, we're just not seeing that as much anymore. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's incredible to think about all those great offensive tackles, offensive guards that were in the NFL that came out of the Big 12. And now it's like, you know, you see Terrence Steele, who's the best offensive lineman in the NFL, or the best offensive lineman in the, in, in the Big 12 last year. And, I mean, he, he's in a bad spot having to start at right tackle for the Cowboys, but he just looks lost. Right. Completely unable to do anything. And he was like the best that the Big 12 had to offer last year. Yeah, it's it's wild. You know, I, it it frustrates me more than anything. And I, I the offensive line conversation is one that we could have uh, for days because I I do feel like there is a drought uh, in linemen when you consider the influx of uh, defensive linemen in the NFL. And I think a lot of it is honestly, Ari, is you get a bunch of kids, and I, I see it every year. I go out and talk to some little league team and. Uh, you know, Johnny's mom is just pissed that he plays on the offensive line. Well, that's not fun. Uh, playing the defensive line or carry the football. No one wants to play in the offensive line. And it's that Fortnite culture, right? Because everybody's got a stat now. Every kid has got statistics. And they use it as this way of measuring or feeling each other out. And, you know, you don't have stats on the offensive line. You know, no one is talking about you on the offensive line. You're not uh, an individual on the offensive line. And I think it, it really kind of starts in our in the way that we present it to people uh, as far as peewees are concerned. And I will absolutely tell you, and I'm dead serious when I say this, offensive linemen are the best athletes on the field, period. I can go to a 7-Eleven within 50, you know, 50 uh, yards of my house and find some kid that is fast. Oh, you're fast? I believe that you're fast, right? But to find someone like me or Casey Hampton or one of these guys that's 340 pounds and, is, and is, has ballerina feet that's a yeah. hard thing to find right it, it just is yeah, totally but so many of these guys if you look at say take your top 40 uh, defensive linemen in the nfl right now and i wouldn't even say there are top 40 offensive linemen in the nfl right now there's just not that many of them that are elite and look at how many of those guys and think how many of you would play guard how many of you would have been a center and i'm telling you it's half of them they've got guard bodies they've got center bodies they've got short legs they've got long arms but they all started playing defense because defense gives them accolades. Defense makes you a hero. Defense puts your name uh, in the newspaper. And that is 20, that's the most 2020 damn thing ever. Everybody's social media page, look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, the offensive line is a humble position for humble people. I don't want the, the spotlight. I feel better when you score uh, touchdowns or when I protect my quarterback. 
If you watch uh, now NFL games today, college games today, watch how many quarterbacks get hit and their offensive line doesn't pick them off the ground. And I'm just losing my shit. I don't care if it's an Oklahoma State game or Dallas Cowboy game or whatever. That's your job. Get around that guy. Protect him. Protect the money. Protect your family. Like, that's my mentality uh, and the way I was raised. That's how my father's mentality was uh, when it came to playing the game. And it just doesn't exist. And the guys that do feel that way, the Lane Johnsons of the world, right, the guys who take that to heart, who are, are, are who, live that, who live that offensive lineman life, you know, those are the ones that separate themselves. Like, I love Zeus Brown at their Baltimore. That kid's going to be a star one day. But his father played the way that he plays, right, committed to the team, do whatever it takes. And you just don't have those guys anymore, and it's frustrating. And it's like a it's like a mini pandemic in the NFL. Watching the Senior Bowl practices, Ari, have you watched that shit? The one on one pass yeah. rush? Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't even win. Offensive line don't even win those things anymore. And I'm like, it's it's I don't know what's going to change, but you know, for for t- Dallas ten years ago or twenty years ago, thirty years ago, even you could find linemen on the street that are looking for a home. You could, you can't anymore. Right, you're lucky to have one good backup today in the NFL, and that's to me crazy. And I don't, I don't think it's anything to do with the NFL or college. I think it's the way that the position is being presented to kids. And I, it's like I said, it's like a mini pandemic inside the NFL, and it's I don't know that it's ever going to change. Well, and it, it reinforces your point about three techniques too, right? Absolutely. You know, like that's a, that's a that's a thankless position too, where it's like you're not going to your stats are not a good indication of the type of impact you have in the game. And I, I think you're 100% correct. I, I don't think defenses have changed. I just think the, the demand for that type of position has changed. And, you know, you're right. You, you need you need team-oriented guys to win. And you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to have a roster just full of them. But you do need to have them. And those are the guys that are going to probably make up the bulk of those thankless positions because they understand the, more, the importance of team more than anything else. And, I mean, I mean you said it. You've obviously – you know the position well uh, and the offensive line well, but yeah, I mean, it's offensive line to me has always been the, 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 the components of, I don't care what your talent is. How well does that group play together Absolutely. And for each other and for, and, and to your point for the quarterback. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I, it's hard to measure and see, but in terms of like how much of a, uh, uh, you know, how much worse has play gotten, but I think you're right. Like there's just so many examples of it that it's, it's hard not to think that it has all right, buddy, give me your uh, Big 12 champion. Who's going to get this thing done this year? Yeah, I picked Oklahoma at the beginning of the year because I was basically of the mind that said, well, until somebody you know beats them and proves that they can beat them, I'm just going to keep picking them. And, man, I, they're playing well right now. I I, I, I think I think Oak, Bedlam in, in the Big 12 championship game would be amazing, and I think that's what we're going to see. All right, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I really appreciate it. Sam, thanks for asking me, man. I appreciate it. Have a good one. The Sam Mays Podcast is a production of P-Squared Media.